Hello everyone, welcome to the next episode of the Bill and the Car Show. Today we're going to be talking about seaweed architecture. You've definitely not made a video on this. No, I didn't even know it was a topic or a product. I, after I released a video on arbor wood or yakasugi wood, I came across this one YouTuber called Catherine Larson. She's also an architect. I think she's doing her master's in architecture in the Netherlands. She's a fascinating person and she does a lot of research into seaweed and all the different types of seaweed and what we can make with it. So if you go to her Instagram page, she makes these awesome light fixtures that look like a cross between Mondrian and Frank Lloyd Wright. Yeah, there's a very artistic quality to this this seaweed that she uses just looking at her her instagram page and it's it's kind of like a stained glass a little bit um and she's doing this only with seaweed i think she uses ground up seaweed with some other binders so it's a liquid that she puts into these molds or these uh, wooden forms and lets it set for a couple of hours or days until it hardens into like a, like a plastic. It's not glass. It's not ha as hard as glass. But it, I think it's as as pliable as plastic. But it's translucent. It's translucent. And it can be all different colors. It can be reds and greens and blues or yellows. It seems like a, like a lamp is a very good application for something like this because you get that very unique light or, or having maybe a window with this or something as the light shines through it because the light is what really creates this interesting effect. Absolutely, and, and it's not just a perfect piece. It has impurities in it and little dots and little tiny solids in it because it's seaweed. It has, uh, it, it's like crushed up seaweed. So it, it has this texture in the, in, the, in the film. It's not just a solid piece of uh, like green glass or green plastic. It's very interesting that she, studying in architecture, stumbled upon this. Uh, but it's just another example of someone who is in architecture and then just branching off and, and moving in a different direction. Yeah. And we try to do something like that. We, after our master's, we, you moved straight into an engineering firm because you saw more future in, in that. And, or more money. And you were a VD specialist. Yes, virtual design specialist. And I moved into a construction firm. I also tried to work at an architecture firm. That was a pretty interesting slash toxic experience. But I also tried to venture out of the architecture field, work in a construction field, uh, an interior design field, a medical equipment planning field, try to find something out there other than architecture. What do you think the initial reason was for you to move out of architecture? Like, like with me, it was it was a couple of things, but one of them was money. An engineering firm was going to pay me a lot more than an architecture firm was. But the other was the actual interview itself, like what this the value that the company saw in me as an architect, whereas the value that an architecture firm sees in a an intern, basically. Like they, they're like, okay, you're just a dime a dozen. Bring in the next one here. We'll give you the six-month training on the software that we use and use it like us. Whereas 
the engineering company was like, wow, we've never seen someone with this kind of knowledge that that knows how to use this software. And that's what was really intriguing to me was the freedom that they were going to allow me. I had the same experience. Working at the architecture firm, it was just, this is, you're a drafter. This is how things are going to be done. We're going to monitor your every move and we don't value you at all. Just the slide the next person in line. Exactly. They, I, I felt insignificant. I felt like there was no future there. But working at a construction firm or a medical equipment planning firm, there was more value given to the employees. There was a future at those firms. There was growth potential. And sometimes a an ability to explore your creativity more, which is ironic because in architecture school, that's all you're encouraged to do is to explore your creativity. But maybe that's the reason because they know that once you get into the real world, it's take away all that creativity and allow only the partners that uh, to do that. They are the only ones that make the decisions. You are just a drafter. Yes. It's very sad, but that's the, that's the reality. So it seems like Catherine is uh, another one of those that's diverging from the path of architecture. And, and, and who knows? She's, she's still young. She may uh, continue down the path of architecture, but she's also doing exploring this new uh, building material. Yeah, she might find the perfect fit at an architecture firm. That, and that's perfectly all right. I'm sure there are plenty of firms out there that, are, that we just, maybe we came across the wrong architecture firms. But what she's done, start her own, she started her own company while still in grad school, started and she's also working at another company part-time her drive is just out of this world i was so impressed with her linkedin posts and her instagram posts and her work and i reached out to her and said hey can you come on my podcast and please be the first female person that i interview it's very very interesting to see someone with so much drive at such a young age and to well, I guess you just kind of have to listen to the podcast to understand. So let's learn a little bit more about seaweed, seagrass, and sustainability. So today we have Catherine Larson with us. She's from New Jersey, but now lives in the Netherlands. Thanks for joining us, Catherine. Thank you for having me. So uh, we've never met in person. I've just connected with you through LinkedIn, but I am fascinated with your background and everything that you do. Uh, connect, correct me if I'm wrong, but you grew up in New Jersey, did yep. one year of architecture at Cornell University, then yeah. moved to Denmark, and <laughs> yes. then moved to the Netherlands for your master's in architecture, and that's what you're currently doing right now. But you also run your own business called Studio Catherine Larson. You're also exploring bioplastics and seaweed leather and this whole feel that I, I'm completely blown away by. And you know, seven different languages. So that's Danish, no, I, Dutch. I know, <laughs> I know five languages. I've just worked in both Swedish and Norwegian um, because it's very similar to Danish. So I don't know either language. I can just kind of like read it and correct drawings in it. <laughs> no, you're, you're playing it down, but you also know Japanese, don't you? Yes. Yeah, I did. I studied it as a kid. Um, I was really fascinated because my dad was actually born on a military base in Okinawa. So um, he had all these photos of him as like a little three-year-old and like a yukata and everything. So, and my grandma would always talk about like their time in Japan and how amazing it was. Um, and I also really loved anime. 
<laughs> so I just like that was I just really started studying it and I was really lucky because my school had an, uh, um, a sister exchange with Kasakabe Girls High School so we had like I which host- is in Japan which is in Japan yes okay um so we hosted uh several several girls from the high school and stuff so I got to like practice Japanese with them and then I got to visit them in Japan um so that's yeah. fascinating but have you ever lived in Japan Yes, actually, I met my husband in Japan at the same language school in Tokyo. <laughs> so between high school and Cornell, I actually took a gap year for a year with CIE in, in Tokyo. And I specifically asked for host families that spoke no English because I really wanted to like master Japanese while I was there. Oh. So I had like four hours of language school and then I would come home and practice all evening with my host family. And um, my goal was really just to like learn how to like read and write because I learned a lot of spoken Japanese up until that point, but I couldn't read or write at all because you need to know around 2000 characters to be able to really read. Um, I got about to 800 before I left. So I was like reading Sailor Moon. <laughs> <laughs> I was really proud of that. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Do you get to practice it nowadays? Um, I do, but in like really weird circumstances. Like uh, one time I was in the Copenhagen airport and there was like a Japanese couple behind me and they wanted to bring on like a massive thing of soap in their carry-on. And the only like instructions they had was in Chinese and the guy was trying to give it to them in Chinese. Um, so I just started interpreting for him. <laughs> them like I'm sorry but this can't be brought in your carry-on luggage it could have been in your check baggage but now it's too late so they have to throw it out oh you know like so I use it in like strange situations like that um really but um yeah but for the most part um I don't really get to use it all that much anymore um except when I visit Japan but the last time I was in Japan was before the pandemic so yeah so when you moved from Cornell to Denmark what is your motivation behind that is was it your interest in bioplastics or was it a certain uh, this type of university in Denmark was more catered towards your uh, your your field um actually so the move was uh was a couple of things at that point I was already dating my future husband and he was in Copenhagen so I was like haha I'm gonna move to you <laughs> but also uh the big thing was um so I had gotten into Cornell but um my parents really didn't have much of a college fund for me and I'm the oldest of five kids so uh when I really realized I think the economic impact it would be on my family to go to university there um I really tried to figure out if I could find like a cheaper way to study and um, there was this uh, school in Copenhagen called the Copenhagen School of Design and Technology, and they had an architectural technology program. And I thought that sounded similar to architecture. I didn't really know if it was the same thing. It turns out it wasn't. But uh, I was like, oh, it's like 9,000 euros a semester. That's so much cheaper oh my to gosh, study wow. there. Yeah. So um, I was like, I can stay at Cornell and be $300,000 in debt by the time I graduate, plus interest on top of that. Or I can go to Europe, be with this guy that I really love, and also study something similar-ish, maybe. I get some work experience in the industry and, you know, and not be in debt. <laughs> yeah. 
So, um, but I wanted to do that one year at Cornell because, um, first of all, I worked so hard to get into the school, yeah. but also because, um, I think the way they teach design at Cornell is really like fascinating. They're really like architecture is everything. And, um, they have just it's all very, around you. It's all around you. Exactly. So getting to be in that environment, even though it was only for a year was like so influential for me, um, and kind of gave me the groundwork actually to then come to Europe and, absorb things and and apply that into my practice as it is now. So tell us a little bit more about your practice. It's called Studio Catherine Larson. When did you establish it and what are you focusing on in your business? So I formally established it in October. (laughs) So on paper established, Um, uh, but I've kind of been working, I guess you could say like under my own name on the side of working full-time in the industry since around 2018. Um, And that's when I really started doing uh, the research on thatching with with seagrass from the island of Lesu. And that was something I came across while I was in Denmark. Um, They called it seaweed thatching, but it's actually thatched with seagrass, which is um, like, it's a plant that grows underwater. It's confused often with seaweed. It's very similar, but distinctly different enough that you can thatch with it and you should not thatch with seaweed. Um, but anyway, why um, shouldn't you thatch with seaweed? Um, it's really prone to rot. Um, but seagrass is, if it's properly prepared is actually rot resistant. Um, so that's the thing I stumbled across this material while I was in Denmark. I never knew any of this. Um, I was just like, how did, how do you build with this? Um, and like all the information was like in Danish. So there was like a language lock and I was like, oh, it's obscure, weird Danish too. (laughs) I guess I better start studying. So I came across this in 2016 and then when by the time 2018 rolled around, my Danish was kind of good enough that I kind of started reaching out to craftspeople and like, Hey, I'm trying to research this for school, but actually I'm totally obsessed with this. Like, can you tell me more about it? <laughs> so what about it? What about seaweed or not seaweed? You called it sea- seagrass, seagrass. Sorry. So what about seagrass was so enticing to you? Well, so I started studying about it and um, I realized that it's rot resistant if it's prepared correctly. It um, insulates pretty comparably with mineral wool. And I also found out we had a really long history of using this as an insulation material in the US. Um, Radio City is actually insulated with eelgrass. Um, There was a, a very primitive insulation bat from the beginning of the 20th century in the US called Cabot's Quilt that was seagrass sewn in between two sheets of cardboard. Um, That product actually traveled from America overseas to Europe because I found articles uh, from London where they're installing this product. (laughs) Wow, that's fascinating. In like the 1920s. And I also found it described um, as a solution in a 1950s Danish construction handbook. So, I mean, I'm, I started like really tracing like the history of this material. And what I just found so fascinating is like after the 1930s, it just vanished and it vanished because there was a global wasting disease that attacked um, most of the eelgrass um, around the world, around the Northern hemisphere. So because it started washing up in different locations than before, it was a little bit less predictable of a resource. We then fully switched to synthetics mostly. Um, and that also coincided with, you know, the 1950s, the age of modern materials and yeah. also all the, the plastic revolution. 
yeah. plastic revolution. All the modernists were like, we're going to build with plaster and concrete. And this is our style. This is modernism. Um, all this old stuff is old and fussy and we don't want to build that way anymore. We're modern. Uh, <laughs> so I just, I, I mean, when I came to the Netherlands too, I found out they built dikes with it. How? From the Middle Ages, they literally lined massive dikes with the seagrass because it was rot resistant and it also would clump together. So it was a form so of it protected control. wood. So yeah, it will it protected the side of the dike from erosion. Okay. Um, so they just lined the side of the dike towards uh, towards the land with massive, like literally a meter thick of seagrass that would then clump, turn silver, and harden, um, and would keep everything kind of in place. Um, so they say now in the Netherlands at even some concrete dikes today are actually the center of them is an old seaweed dike or seagrass. Because they dike. just added to the previous layers. Yeah. Oh, they built on wow. top of it. <laughs> so it's super cool. So was there someone out there that you could, whose research you could build on? Or was this all that, all this research that you've done is all on your own? Um, yeah, there, I mean, there was actually a couple of people in Denmark working with this that pointed me in the right direction. There was a company called Zostera, um, and they had manufactured a modern seagrass bat. Um, and uh, so the, the woman who was the co-founder of that was actually the daughter who is the daughter of the master thatcher from Lesu. Uh, so she had actually thatched these, these houses herself. And um, she's the one who kind of pointed me in the direction of Cabot's quilt. She had a website that was like full of information. Um, and then the other people I talked to were Ben Kunsten, which is an architecture firm in Copenhagen. And they made what's known as the modern seaweed house, where they took this old traditional thatching style from Lesu and they kind of reinterpreted it into like um, these like sausage rolls on a facade and on a on a summer house on and they use it as siding they use it as siding they use it as insulation and then to like make an ode to the fact that eelgrass actually also used to be used to stuff mattresses they had this like soft plush interior on the ceiling so almost like mattresses on the ceiling uh the stuff with the seagrass which is so cool uh, <laughs> so I looked at that as well, and I also got to interview the architect who is the head of that project, ask him questions, and um, I also reached out to a studio called Studio Seagrass, um, and now Studio Seagrass and Zostera kind of merged together on a joint project, um, and they're working on something called Sewool. Uh, sea wool, <laughs> which is an acoustic mat, um, which is really the insulation bat that was developed before, but kind of rebranded aesthetically as, um, as an acoustic mat because um, it can be like molded into different shapes and people are a little bit more accepting of seagrass as an acoustic solution than maybe um, an insulation solution. Uh, just because now people are so primed to accept synthetic solutions that now they're scared of natural solutions. Even, uh, yeah. even though um, people have opened up 200 year old wall cavities and found seagrass perfectly preserved in it, uh, people are a bit nervous uh, to use it again. So this uh, seagrass, could it be used? I'm sorry, is it location specific? Like how, like how many countries around the world could adopt this technology? Um, it, is, it is very location specific, which is why when I'm working with it as a solution, I'm pretty careful to not prescribe it as like a one, one size fits, fits all. all. 
So for example, um, in the Netherlands, they built a dike in the 1930s that dammed off the Wadden Sea and killed off all the seagrass. Oh. So not enough washes up here anymore. So yeah, from building dikes with it to basically not existing here. So I think, in the, for example, in the Netherlands, it's like you really have to invest in reseeding the Wadden Sea and um, replanting the seagrass beds before you could really responsibly use this as a resource. But in places like Germany and Denmark right now, there's so much that washes up that, you know, the beaches get really clogged with it. So I actually climbed a mountain of rotting seagrass when I was in Moon, uh, like literally like several meters tall. Um, what the com commune usually does is they leave some of it on the beach because it's good for the ecosystem, prevents coastal erosion, things like to spawn in it, live in it. It's great. But too much of it, it can make people sick because it starts to rot, release gases. So they bury it in a landfill. Okay. Um, so most of us are advocating, like if you can get at the point where it washes up, where it's still green and process it, um, on a field for two weeks, just let rain go on it and dry. Um, then you can use it for the building industry. So, um, so have you gathered a group of people where you are like who have similar interests and that's what you're saying you're advocating for that use? Yeah. So I'm advocating for that use where, you know, so much washes up that it's buried in landfills. And you can do the same with another type of seagrass called uh, Neptune grass, um, Poseidon, Poseidon balls, they're also called, uh, which is found around the Mediterranean. And um, actually, as I was researching this in particular, I found out that a lot of places in Spain and France um, and along the Mediterranean have actually in the past used Neptune grass as an insulation material. Wow. Um, and yeah, so now there's some some researchers that are looking into that as well as a solution. So how what do you have to do to process the seagrass in order to use it as insulation? You have a couple of frames behind you. Um, this is building grade seagrass. Yeah, fact. I actually awesome. so I get it from a farmer from the island of Moon. His name is Kurt. He runs a business called Moon Tang, and he used to farm it when he was a kid back for the old seaweed seagrass farming industry um before it died out so he's like og um then <laughs> he has actually like a full museum in his barn with the seagrass veils of like all the different history and applications uh which is super cool uh but so he started up in 2016 again farming it again um and as a large portion every year goes to the island of Leisu to sit in a bank for the houses on the island because they were almost completely destroyed over time um, so there needs to be enough seagrass that at any moment um, they could do repairs on one of the houses because the houses are now cultural heritage. Wow. Um, so they're trying to really build up that supply and that storage so that like at any point they can do it. And I think I, I think back in the day I looked at it, it's around 100 tons of seagrass you need for a roof. So that wow. like and if you see these roofs too they're they're massive they're like a meter thick they're like they're like yaks wow <laughs> are they super insulating they're super insulating yeah they're super super cool too some of them have been refurbished into holiday homes that you can like visit and stay overnight in and if you can I definitely definitely recommend this experience so you've also looked into converting seagrass into leather Oh, yes. So that's actually with kelp. So after I started working with seagrass, then I actually got in contact with kelp farmers from Japan. <laughs> and they were like, okay, well, you can do this with seagrass. This is fascinating. But what could you do with seaweed? Um, and 
then seaweed farmers from around the world started like kind of contacting me with, with this because seaweed kind of became the hype for like climate change and carbon sequestration and people are like oh you know it'd be a really good idea to sequester carbon lock it in a building for 40 years um uh <laughs> yeah but if you demolish it then you know there goes your sequestered carbon basically but anyway it's it, on paper it's it sounds cool so yeah. Um, so a bunch of people contacted me about that. So that's what um, I started experimenting with it. Um, I looked at another designer, her name's Julia Lohman, and she had done these like really, um, really cool like sculptural installations with the kelp. And she kind of made the analogy that like kelp is like leather. So I was like, oh, that's fascinating. Um, can I process this in a way that where it'd be like leather? Could I make it stay flexible when it's dry? Can I sew it? Um, so I, I just started working in my kitchen. I, and I also spoke to the kelp farmers who also knew Julia. So it was funny because I was actually in Japan with a meeting with them and they're like, do you know Julia? And I was like, I kind of know her. Yeah, I do. <laughs> wow. What a small world. So it's a very small world. Once you start working with this, you realize like, and especially if you're working with farmers, you know, they, they kind of like they're intrigued by this application. So they, they keep tabs on it. Uh, and they um, develop like personal relationships with like. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And I really like that. I like that. I know where my seaweed comes from. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I actually don't harvest my seaweed myself. I rely on farmers because they responsibly harvest most of them. Um, so I rely on people who know what they're doing with ecosystems rather than go at it myself. Full, full disclaimer. Okay. Um, but anyway, Is that so, controversial. Yeah. Um, I know a lot of designers who are like a big fan of self-harvesting, but I also know some of them aren't, don't really pay attention to, to details like ecosystems or taking too much or, um, and I'm very self-conscious of that just because, um, if you, there's, there's proper ways to actually harvest, especially kelp where you can harvest it so that it'll grow back. But if you rip it up from the stipes, it will not grow back at all. So if you over harvest by ripping it out and stuff, you can actually cause a significant decrease in like the wild population. Okay. So um, I, I don't know how to do that properly. <laughs> so rely, rely on the experts people. to do that. Yeah. Or the people who farm it um, yeah. as well. So um, yeah. So I, I rely on people who, who have permits and who know what they're doing. Um, instead of me doing that. Also in the Netherlands, you can't harvest without a permit. So, oh, yeah. Um, I think also in places like California as well. Because um, okay. it, it is, it's the ecosystem. So you're okay. not supposed to. So they, you get it shipped all the way from Japan to the Netherlands? Um, well, actually, I picked up a lot when I was in Japan. <laughs> and then I experimented with it. And then I actually started um, experimenting with invasive species in uh, Europe. So um, in, in Venice, for example, wakame came from China and Japan on as spores on boats and then implanted into the canal and then began to take over the ecosystem um, because it's not native to the area. So, um, so I was working with it down in Venice where it's invasive <laughs> and turning it into leather and I made a little stool out of it. Um, for an art residency. Um, Did, where, doesn't need, it's not structural, obviously. So you needed a frame to put it on. Yeah. I made a frame out of wood with, um, another person from the residency. He was really good. His name was David. He was really good with woodworking. So he made the frame. And then I actually wove eelgrass into the frame as like an homage to the fact that it used to be used as like stuffing for upholstery. 
So. Oh, wow. <laughs> and you even made a light fixture, right? Yeah, actually, that's behind me, right? <laughs> One of them is. So. Oh. oh, I was talking about the other leather light fixture I've seen oh, on your Instagram page. Yeah. Wait, I have. Um, we have, we have to. Have we have to come back to that light fixture, though. <laughs> I so that's one light fixture. I have. I have pieces of him. So when I moved countries, <laughs> I disassembled it and made it into like a flat. <laughs> oh wow! And then he broke. Oh. <laughs> But yeah, I had originally made a lamp and um, also too, when you're working with natural materials, you never really know how they're going to hold up over time. So this is like a full disclaimer I give to people who buy any products from me that they might deteriorate over time. So with exposure to light, this began to bleach and it also lost a degree of its flexibility. Um, and this was, um, this was also with wakame but it was wakame dried. And when I worked with the wakame fresh from Venice, it was completely a different texture than this was. So I was really surprised actually how many different factors can like go into working yeah. with these materials. So if you source it from different areas. You can't just use the same techniques to manipulate it or to dry it out. You have to have, a, you have to cater your technique to where, you're, where the, sea, the seagrass or the seaweed is coming from. Yeah, exactly. So I'm, I'm like kind of developing site specific techniques for working with it. And that's actually what my whole thesis was about. Cause I chose a specific lab called the explore lab. So I just was like, how can we use algae and construction? Can I develop some ballpark ideas of different ways to use it? Um, and also in tandem with seagrass. So I came up with uh, two experimental, uh, constructions, uh, timber frame construction and a masonry construction. Um, both using algae and shells and um, seaweed, also based on historical precedents. So Not just as insulation, but as other parts of the building too? Yeah, as other parts. Um, so I wouldn't, I mean, I wouldn't recommend using algae by itself as a material. There are some designers here in the Netherlands that do experiment with this, compressing it into like a wood replacement, for example. That's, a, that's one really cool application I've seen. Um, the thing is seagrass really, sorry, seaweed really likes moisture. Seagrass also does, but seagrass will release it. Seaweed like holds on to moisture like crazy, like a sponge. Um, and so if you're compressing it into panels and stuff, you really need a strong binder. Otherwise it's going to start expanding like crazy. Wow. If any moisture comes into contact with it. Okay. So actually what I looked at was, um, techniques from Japan in particular, um, using it as a glue. Um, and then also using it as a fiber and like clay plaster and stuff. Oh, like, so do you pulverize it into a powder? Okay. Yeah. So like trying to like dry it, pulverize it, um, or shred it by hand and mix it in with plaster, different consistencies, um, and then testing it and seeing how it works. And the same thing with the seaweed glue, boiling it, straining it, um, trying also working with it from an extract from a powder, um, I worked with Kappa carrageenan, which is an extract from Irish moss, um, and turned that into a glue. Um, and that's in, in Denmark, actually, that was a glue base for a ceiling paint back in the back in the days. 
So actually housewives in the 1950s would like mix up the ceiling paint with Irish moss glue and chalk and they would paint their ceilings with it. Oh, wow. <laughs> I've never heard of that before. Wow. Me neither. I never heard about that either. I, when I was in Denmark, I was like really obsessed with the facades and how brightly colored they were. And I got to have a really cool lecture by, um, his name is Søren Vadstrup. I can't pronounce it properly in Danish because it's got the O and the soft D in it. It's really <laughs> tough. Um, anyway, um, he did an amazing lecture. He's like the guy for conservation history in Denmark. And like, I've opened up like building local plans and like seen his research in the local plans sort cited for the facade colors wow. that are approved for the area. Cause he's done like so much work on like the pigments, the glues, you know, the different binders, how to replace some of the pigments that were toxic <laughs> or are no longer able to get where you can still get that true color. Um, so, I mean, this guy is like the expert in Denmark, got a lecture by him. And yeah, he also wrote about this uh, seaweed paint as well in Denmark. Um, so um, that's the, the great thing actually about learning so many languages is you get to actually be able to read in the local language and learn about these like sort of hidden uh, techniques and histories with and materials. You talked about this earlier during our conversation. You, you said that you felt locked out you had all these resources but they were in a different language and you felt locked out of it so learning that language overcame that barrier and now you have access to all this other stuff and hopefully yeah. you can translate it and then pass that information on to hundreds or thousands of other people yeah that's my goal and so that's also what I try to do with like my YouTube channel and stuff um I try to take stuff that's like might be region locked <laughs> or from a different cultural perspective. And I try to, to explain it uh, for maybe people back home in America or from other countries that are interested in these. Yes, you have an amazing YouTube channel. Very fascinating. I learned a lot from your channel. <laughs> Thank you. And let's move on to that, that fixture that you have behind you. I, I was trying to explain it yes. to someone. I called it a cross between Mondrian and Frank Lloyd Wright. But, but it <laughs> well, so that's funny because a lot of people have said Mondrian. That was not at all my intent at all when I started designing these. Actually, I was going around Delft and Delft has these amazing stained glass facades that were from the same time Mondrian is from. So I was just like, oh, pretty stained glass, sketching in my sketchbook, all these different grids and colors and like, oh, this color is next to this color. These are these the colors that they were using back then. Um, and so then I kind of like started channeling that into these lights originally as a part of my thesis. And then I had a client uh, purchase 11 of them. <laughs> so I've been building them at home. <laughs> How many have you um, made so far? I made seven and handed them over. And then the last four, four are this size. So <laughs> it takes a while. It takes a while. I have done two of the last four and um, I'm still trying to channel some energy for the last two. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> my client sees this. I'm sorry. I'm really trying my best to stick to my delivery times, but it is, it's, it's a lot of work. Each one yeah. takes about three solid days, like nine to five kind of work. You, to, you, to you made a video on your YouTube channel, just talking a little bit about how it's made. Can, I think you laser cut pieces, wood pieces, and then you pour yeah. a mixture inside it. Can you talk a little bit more about that? How do you achieve all the different colors? Oh yeah. So the colors are all natural. Um, actually I, I use microalgae um, not to be confused with seaweed. 
I use spirulina. So a lot of people use spirulina as like a health extract, but it's got this like crazy vivid green color. Um, and you can also extract a blue pigment from it as well um, by mixing it with some, some different reactors and stuff. Um, spirulina is a, a group of microalgae um, known as cyanobacteria. Um, so blue-green, um, blue-green uh, cyanobacteria. So it's got blue and green in it. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so I, I use that as a dye for the bioplastic. And um, what I do is I just dissolve it in some water and add actually a bit of sugar as well to it because the, um, the spirulina has some proteins and stuff in it that will actually destabilize the bioplastic. So adding that like little teaspoon of sugar to the mix is actually really essential to make it, um, to make it stable. And that's just something you figured out on your own? That's something that I figured out by talking to other people who work with this. So there's like a big community of bio designers and there are some people who share information open source. And I try to be one of those people as well. And we share tips and tricks like that um, for people who are experimenting at home. That's um, very tricky because you're putting so much time and effort into making these. And then you, you kind of have to figure out that fine line between holding back your knowledge and also sharing it with, with everyone else. Yeah. And it, it really is a fine line, but what I try to do is if it's something that has historical precedent, or it's something that other people could actually find on the internet and, um, just maybe don't see it all in one place. That's the stuff I feel pretty comfortable sharing. Um, I do have stuff that's a little bit more IP, a little bit more protected. Um, but Honestly, um, I didn't really consider that until I would say a year ago when I realized I started running into plagiarism, plagiarism issues. <laughs> wow. Um, sometimes I had some instances where I was literally staring at my own words and my own research back in my face, literally either paraphrased or um, copied directly. And uh, what was worse is most of the time it was misapplied. So people like talking about seaweed insulation and drawing kelp oh, <laughs> and me going, no, this is probably going to rot. Like, please, like, please, like seagrass only. I know I, I, my big problem was when my research kind of went viral, I was referring to it as seaweed because that's the historical term for seagrass. It was lumped in with seaweed. And when you translate a lot of these, um, these, uh, like seaweed dikes, seaweed houses. It is the word seaweed, but they're referring to seagrass, sea specific species of seagrass. Um, and I wasn't clear enough about that. So then it just, the misinformation grew and grew and grew. And I'm like, now seeing my work, not just plagiarized, but then applied incorrectly. And, you know, if construction too, it's, it's even worse because it's like, I don't want to be the reason that somebody gets injured or hurt because they're trying an experimental construction. And like, all of a sudden there's black mold in a house somewhere. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I take that responsibly pr responsibility pretty seriously. So also too, that's why I try to share, <laughs> but also, you know, be aware of how I'm sharing and yeah. what I'm sharing. Um, Good learning experience. Yeah, I learned it the tough way, I would yeah. say. <laughs> There's no roadmap on like how to deal with these things. I so would you say. said you went viral or your research went viral. Was there a particular article that you wrote or a particular project that you made that went viral? Yeah, my thesis, which um, I developed like a prototype trying to turn the um, traditional thatch into like these prefab thatch panels. 
that was published on the zine and literally it was like overnight, like all of a sudden I had a hundred emails from journalists in my, in my Gmail. And I was like, what? <laughs> you have to remember like, um, the school I went to in Denmark was like very, like very small. Um, I was the only student that was kind of pursuing stuff like this. And the only reason the project happened at all was because the material design lab at the school kind of like was like, we believe in you and we're going to give you access to our lab and like, you know, we're going to let you use your our lab for your research, even though we're not actually part of your faculty. Yeah. Um, so it was like through connections at the school. I actually worked at the school for almost a year and a half. So like people within the school were like, trying to, to do and, yeah yeah and like helping push this to like the next level because they could see I was like a motivated student um and you know I had already graduated by the time Tazine ran that article and I was really struggling to take it further I actually had I had scholarship money and I was trying to de further develop it and um I just kept getting like silence like a booming silence throughout the building industry because <laughs> oh. nobody wanted to help me. And then the zine just like blew it all up. And suddenly, you know, a couple of people were actually starting to write back to me. And then I started to get a lot more interest that made it possible for me to actually continue working with that. So what do you want to do with your business? Like, how do you want to grow it? Do you want to still develop these sort of like e sustainable, eco-friendly alternatives to building construction materials? Do you want to still be focused in on seaweed and seagrass or are you going to open up a little bit more to different types of bioplastics um I'm actually pretty in my head I'm pretty open what I like to look at specifically is I like to look at um traditional architecture vernacular architecture and how to integrate that um I would say my practice right now is like 50 50 down the middle of like experimental weird seaweed material research but also like um natural materials and this like very site-specific studies and stuff like really weird pushing the edge the boundary of design and then half extremely conservative like regular nine to five working on regular projects i actually work a lot with renovation because i think that's the most sustainable uh way to work with architecture is to actually retrofit spaces so um i like to work with that and if i'm working with new building i like to work with housing projects um specifically housing projects for young people for people who um for example um have autism that was a project i got to work on in denmark um so trying to i don't know i just i like trying to put myself in the shoes of different people who are not usually having things designed for them. And I like to try to design for them specifically. That's very interesting. Uh, maybe we can have another conversation about that, like designing a house for people on the autism spectrum. Is it, is yeah. it a completely different way of thinking? It's kind of like when ADA became popular in the States and suddenly we were thinking about turning radii and reachability and then protrusion from the side walls, all that stuff that we weren't really thinking about before. Is it similar yeah. when you're designing for other people with special needs, like autistic people? Absolutely. I would say it's, um, for me, it's, um, it's fascinating to think about the way that other people experience the same world that I'm living in and the needs that they have that I can then create a space for them where they can flourish. Um, and, and that's really what I love doing. This, this project in particular, um, I got to create like sensory spaces and I got to really think a lot about acoustics and daylight um, and um, 
exterminate sure nothing has sharp corners um it's all soft corners but at the same time in denmark because that's where this project was located it was a public project um they really wanted people to have autonomy so i got to design kitchens for the people in this home so that they can make their own food um and they they're living in a care home but it's a care home where they have autonomy where they have responsibilities um yeah i i just really enjoyed working with that project and it was a different way of thinking i think that's awesome but it's it's fascinating like I, i'm going to go full circle to exactly how i started this conversation what you're doing is incredible you, you you are so motivated and thank you for being for the first woman on my podcast i only had <laughs> male so far rapin <laughs> but really what's the best way people want to reach you is it on your website you have an instagram page too i have an instagram at the seaweed girl i have a gmail i i just post everywhere i also have a open uh form on my website yeah this is awesome we have to catch up again discuss other projects and uh, other creations and all your experiments and everything else <laughs> absolutely <laughs> thanks catherine thank you So Catherine wasn't the first person to use seaweed or seagrass as a construction material. Uh, she actually pulled that from uh, ancient construction material used in Japan. Yeah, and in Scandinavia too. She's but she has built on all the knowledge that she's gained during her travels in Japan and even around Scandinavia too. She has connected to it sounds like she's connected to and every every seaweed expert a seagrass expert in the world yeah she's really delved into that field and it's like you said it's something i didn't know existed really and it's still hard to wrap my head around what it is like unfortunately it's not something that we have in front of us we can touch and we can feel and we can see we could just just look at the images in her videos and it looks like a really beautiful product but uh, i'm just very curious about how it smells how it feels yeah and it seems so versatile cuz she's made so many things with it she's turned it into like leather she's made acoustic panels out of it and there just so many things she has manipulated it into but it's hard to wrap your head around it's also one of those products that is very niche i mean she even mentioned that it's it's restricted ge- geographically like it's not something that you want to use in a what like a a grass field or something like Nebraska or something uh but it it is it makes sense to use it somewhere in like the Netherlands or in like Venice or Japan some something that is surrounded by a body of water is one of those things i mentioned this in my previous videos like use what's locally available local building materials local talent local traditions local culture so like in the UAE people build out of concrete because there aren't any trees the idea of shipping trees from scandinavia all the way to the uae and converting all every building material there to wood is just not sustainable like use what's local so in the netherlands are even in italy she mentioned italy as well if seaweed is available and can be manipulated in something really great really sustainable and why not use that locally but then scalability comes into the equation that is what we call in architecture school vernacular architecture and it seems to be it seems that she's very interested in that and that's the idea of taking what's local and using that unfortunately that's dying 
It is, yeah, globalization is really killing that. I always like to reference the example of a professor I had at Texas Tech University who he lived in Bern, Switzerland his whole life and came over to the United States. And of all places, he landed in Lubbock, Texas, which is just on the top. It's just a, on a plateau and there's absolutely nothing. But he was fascinated by the landscape and the sunsets and uh, the horizon and just how different it was from Switzerland. And he actually um, spent a few years designing a home in Lubbock, but he wanted to respect the vernacular uh, that was there. And so what he did is he uh, captured uh, the idea of a, a grain silo and used that uh, as his vernacular for his home construction. And he made this beautiful building out of it. Have you shown that? Yeah, I've shown that to you. So it's not, it's not like a grain silo, but he, he would talk about how he would always make these drives and to get anywhere in Lubbock, you have to drive a long ways. And he would see all these abandoned grain silos. And so he took that idea of the metal siding and used a corrugated metal for his house. So it's that, it's that um, mimicking of your environment. You're going to make me say Houston has to convert into ship, shipping container homes because it's vernacular because <laughs> of their shipyard. So I guess vernacular, you can take it. Like how much do you stretch it? Yeah, like that vernacular is not something that's been around for a thousand years, like something like seaweed, I assume. Like ancient Japan, I could see that they use that a lot. But uh, these, these grain silos were something that's relatively new, but they're abandoned and it's kind of bringing that back. It's an interesting take on vernacular. I would think uh, like plaster homes or something would be vernacular in Lubbock. That's more further west. That's New Mexico. That's Santa Fe and Albuquerque. You definitely see the uh, adobe, fake adobe homes. So like in the UAE, vernacular, vernacular architecture might be like coral reef homes because they used to use corals as building blocks and plaster in between. Oh, wow. Not glass skyscrapers? No, touche. Uh, and even wind towers or something. That would be vernacular. But it, but that's an interesting point you make that it's not scalable because that is something that was done a long time ago when there wasn't, wasn't this idea of scaling or globalization. So that's why these newer building materials, wood and metal and concrete, went out because they're scalable. There's a reason why vernacular architecture is dying or unique architecture in each state or each country. It's because when one product can be made cheaply and can be exported to all these other countries in the world and is cheaper than what's locally made, everyone's just going to adopt what's cheapest. And you slowly lose that unique identity that you had. The culture. It's very sad. So where does this seaweed architecture or seaweed products go? Like we like we said, not being able to touch the material and know how it performs or anything. Like when you say architecture, I think of a building material, but it doesn't seem like seaweed in itself is structural in any way. It's hard to see this seaweed architecture scale, but who knows? Uh, Catherine seems very motivated. Oh my gosh, yes. Her idea could evolve over time, and uh, she seems very interested in natural materials in general. Maybe it's not seaweed. Maybe it's the next thing that she finds. And maybe it's not acoustic panels or 
leather it's the next product that she she in, invents or creates and she is that type of person that's so driven so passionate about something if anyone's going to find that next step i think she will now i'm excited to see what she experiments with next i'll provide links to her instagram page and her website in the description so go check her out uh if there are any other females in the construction industry that would like to be on the podcast please reach out to me on linkedin or my email uh i think we need a little bit more variety on the show all right so i hope you enjoyed this discussion join us next week for another episode on building science products and technology